Welcome to the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast, where our goal is to connect listeners to the great outdoors with hosts Brian Hoffmeyer and Ben Brandell. I'm host Ben Brandell, owner of Meant to Be Outdoors, instructor of outdoor skills, and passionate about personal growth. I'm host Brian Hoffmeyer, wildlife biologist and avid outdoorsman. Welcome back to the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast. I'm your host, Brian, with my co-host, Ben Brandell, and today is a good day. This is another Thursday episode, and we have a special guest. Our topic today is actually marine biology, and for that, what better to bring in than a marine biologist? So we have our good friend and former colleague, Sarah Anderson, on with us today. She is a marine biologist. She's worked in marine biology for years, particularly in education. We have learned so much from her over the years, and we are excited for you guys to hear from her, learn about her, and learn from her as well. But before we get into that interview, we need to give thanks. I'm thankful for friends, relationships. You're going to get to meet Sarah. Sarah has helped me in so many ways in my life. When I worked with her in the past, um, she taught me a lot. She taught me a lot about how to teach different age groups. You know, I was used to guiding different age groups, but when it really comes to teaching and how you take information and send it to someone else. Um, she is so good, especially with that young age level. And I've just, man, I've learned so much from her. I'm so thankful that God placed her in my life during that time um, when I was an educator. So very thankful for um, relationships and thankful for Sarah Anderson. Yeah, I'm thankful for uh, all the people that really support us in in small ways to allow us to do things like have a podcast from the equipment that we have to uh, a new little studio area that we've been able to build late built recently that people have contributed financially to um, and even where we went to record the podcast that they let us record there and then of course Sarah for being willing to be on it is nerve-wracking it is kind of a vulnerable thing to sit in this microphone and know that a lot of people are going to listen and criticize and critique the things that you have to say so thankful for really the relationships the people that have helped us and all that we have that allows us to do that what we do you know the place that we actually were able to record this at the farm that Sarah works at um, it's a really awesome place. But while we were recording and really talking and interviewing with Sarah, there were sounds that we heard all the way from, I think, heard a cow, heard some birds, uh, maybe even a goat. Definitely, <laughs> definitely a goat. <laughs> so, you know, folks, as you're listening to this, um, you're going to hear some noise in the background. That's because we were at a, a full functional farm. Yeah. Without further ado, here is our interview with marine biologist Sarah Anderson. All right, Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. I have been really looking forward. Uh, we've been talking about it for a while, sitting down and, and having you on the podcast. We have not had anybody on the marine side on. So to have a marine biologist on, to have somebody, honestly, you've kind of been a, a mentor, definitely to me, and I think Ben would say the same, especially on the education side and how, how to handle programming and deliver outdoor programming. So it is awesome. I can't wait for all of our listeners to get to know you and to see how crazy you are. We know how crazy you are, but we want all of them to get it as well. So thank you for being on the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast today. Well, I'm excited to be here. It's been, uh, I will be honest, a little bit uh, since I've talked to marine biology, um, but I'm excited to be here. I did a little bit of research that I had to last night, but we'll see. Here we go. Well, we wanted to talk to you about marine biology. One, you're a marine biologist, but it is your passion. When we talk about it, when, when you get to work in this area, 
really anybody that you're in their passion, you see them light up. And we've watched that with you over the years. Uh, and so I have no doubt or fear at all that we will be able to get true Sarah, marine biologist, as we get in. But before we really get in, let's let's ask these get-to-know-you questions so all of our listeners can kind of understand who Sarah is before we really jump into the marine biologist side. So let's start with, what is your favorite outdoor activity? This is an outdoor podcast. It is. And honestly... There's a lot of jokes here. <laughs> um, well, I'm not as outdoorsy as you might think, but I do like some outdoor activities. Um, being a marine biologist, um, I studied in Alaska. So my favorite thing to do is going tide pooling, right? Tide pooling. So, yep. So All just right. looking um, for those animals that are in those pools of water that are left after the tide goes out. So maybe not happens here at Missouri, but I've done it before. So if we move to Missouri, it has changed a little bit, maybe to look for rocks, honestly. Um, I find them very, very interesting. There's a lot of fossils that you can find here in Missouri. So walking along a creek bed or river bed along the river um, is what I like to do. And then at home, I do have animals. Um, so out with the goats or the chickens, and I love to garden. So that's getting, I start soon. So. That's what I like to do as far as me being outdoors, which might not be the same as you being outdoors. I've slept in a tent once. <laughs> I will not do it again. Well, it sounds like you're more outdoorsy than you give yourself credit for. However, we do give you a hard time because there has been trips and events that we've been to where Ben and Brian sleep outside and, and Sarah gets to go in the house <laughs> with everybody else while we sleep on the porch. So That, that might be the truth, yes. <laughs> but, you know, I like your perspective on outdoor activities because Ben and I consider ourselves kind of jacks, jacks of all, and I've never done either of those things. I mean, if you see a really cool rock, you pick it up, but I never go out and say, I'm going to look for cool rocks today, and I've definitely never tide pulled. What, so what exactly, explain that a little more. I don't even really understand what that is. Sure. So depending where you are, um, where the what ocean you're at um, the tide goes in and out so you have a low tide and a high tide i was pacific northwest which i will say that the the best tide pools ever right <laughs> um so as the tide goes out then part of the beach is going to be exposed and when you have rocks and different you end up with pools um, and in those pools of water there are animals mm. um, my focus when i studied marine biology ended up being invertebrates intertidal invertebrates specifically. So for me, it was heaven on earth, right? So I was able to look closely to see and look for those little animals, whether it's a nudibranch, which is a sea slug, right? Um, or snails or anemones, crabs, hermit crabs. And there's a lot of things that people don't even know are there unless the tide goes out. So oh, yeah. it just allows you to see those things. That sounds those fun animals. to me because it is a lot of fun being a Missouri boy my whole life. I haven't seen any of those things except for when we worked at the aquarium together and you got to teach me about any of those things that we had, but never been tide pooling, but I think I would like to do it, but I would like to do it with somebody that knew what they were looking at. Cause I'd just be like, Oh, that looks like it could kill me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there that. are some of those things that you're like, maybe I shouldn't touch it. Right. Mm -hmm. Or is it, is it really an animal? Is it alive? I don't know, like a barnacle is alive, but right. it, you don't know that. And even when you tide pull, you don't know that because it's out of the water, so it's closed up. So you might not even have any idea. 
Well, it sounds like you've been to some cool places because if you've been a, pl- a place that can you can even go tide pooling, that's a cool place to me because I probably have never even been to one of those. But what is the coolest place that you've ever traveled to? The coolest place you've ever been? I mean, I haven't done a whole lot of traveling. I've traveled in North America, um, but I have to go back to the place where I ended up going to college, which is Alaska. Mm. Um, and the town that I lived in Alaska was small, but my little brother ended up living in even more remote Alaska, right? People think Alaska, it's already remote, but he ended up working at a salmon hatchery um, that I had to take a float plane ride to. And then once we got in the boat, because we went fishing, then there was this spot where he shut the engine off and literally there was nothing. There Mm. was no sound. It was just amazing. It was peaceful. Um, of course, the the birds were going, but so what? It's their their space. Right. But no extra sound besides what was just there. nature. Just nature. That sounds awesome. However, the float plane piece you can keep that because every survival book I read is a, a float plane crash and then people I mean, have to survive. You can keep I that. Have, I have a couple stories about float plane rides. Um, there's one, well, two that are scary. One of them, um, I was traveling to see um, my boyfriend, now husband, oh, um, on a float plane ride, um, and the weather was just horrible. So from Sitka, and he actually worked at the same hatchery my little brother worked at, um, Port Armstrong, and it was raining because Sitka is a rainforest, right? So when you're in the float plane, you take off. This one took off off land but we're going to land in the water so the turbulence was really bad you have to move around the mountains Mm. um and then you have to go up and down just to make sure you're out of the clouds or out of the fog because it is raining and the pilot looks at me and goes we're gonna have to turn around when we were over like we were three quarters into the trip and i'm like no, we're not going to turn around. I'm like, do you think you can make it? This is me, like, first year college. I'm really brave. Now I'm a mom. I won't do any of these things. Yeah. Um, and he's like, yeah, I mean, I'll keep going. But literally the turbulence was so bad that we would jump out of our seats and we had to tighten our seat belts. Oh, my goodness. So I'm like, okay. So the hatchery is in a bay, which means that it, it creates a wind tunnel right so he's like i'm not going to be able to land and i'm like okay now we're like 48 minutes out of the 50 minute trip and i see the hatchery and you're telling me no what does that mean i gotta jump correct and he's (laughs) like i can live you in the next town and i'm like i don't know anybody i'm not even from alaska right and you just want to leave me he's like i'll try one more time and we we made it and he got out and i got out and i told rob who's now my husband, I said, grab my stuff. I'm done. Uh-huh. So and we left. I mean, so that one was pretty scary. Yeah. That's that's why I don't think I I don't think I need to be on any float planes because yeah. ha- I would have to have some Ativan or something to get me through it. But if it is a sunny day in Alaska, I always tell everybody it's worth it hmm. because it is, it's beautiful. Just get and to that see float it. plane ride will be different then. <laughs> hmm. So... Alaska sounds beautiful. It is actually on one of my, if if I have a bucket list of places to go visit, I would definitely say Alaska's on there. 
Uh, my in-laws went on a, a cruise to Denali uh, mm-hmm. National Park, and the pictures, oh, my gosh, I, I have to go to Alaska at, at some point before I leave this earth for sure. And it may have been there. It may have been some in some of your other studies or places you've been, but what's your favorite animal and why? Well, it is pretty funny because I, uh, I ended up in Alaska, but my favorite animal is a sea turtle sea and more specifically the green sea turtle and i don't know it's it's been like that for many 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 years and of course i do i love a lot of animals and almost all animals there are some that you're like okay i see your purpose and i know that you serve a purpose but oh my gosh okay here we go you're good you're good you're an animal and i love it um but green sea turtles it's been a passion they i love them um they serve a great purpose um in our ecosystems but of course there are no sea turtles in alaska because it's cold right cold water sea turtles are found in warm water so but it's still my favorite animal so the green sea turtle what purpose does it serve in the ecosystem what is its role sure so green sea turtles are keystone species which is a animal that is going to be very very important within the food chains and the food webs of an entire ecosystem. So sea turtles, not only the green sea turtles, but other species as well, will eat um, the grasses. So we've got to keep those areas clean. Other fish will also eat that. Um, they will also eat jellies, jellyfish. People call them jellyfish, jellies. Um, so keeping those population downs, sometimes we have those blooms and we'll have lots and lots mm. of jellies. Is the green sea turtle... Is it an endangered species or is it doing well? Nope, it is an endangered species. And I believe all of the species of sea turtles are endangered on the endangered Did not list. know that now. Yep. So That's scary. That is pretty scary. So um, they, like I said, being a keystone species, you're going to, you need them in, the, in those ecosystems. They mm-hmm. play their purpose. They have a purpose. They play their role. Okay, Sarah, we know your favorite animal. We know your favorite place to be is Alaska. We know that you're a marine biologist. What exactly is a marine biologist? What is just the definition of it? So marine biologist is a biologist. So it's someone who studies ocean life, Mm. Um, which is simple, right? Because you hear the word biologist and marine. So marine is ocean, saltwater, animals, and then biology study of life. Um, the thing to think about, though, when it comes to marine biology is that because everything is intertwined, you have to look at not just the animals, not just the species, because there is a lot to it, but also like the behaviors and the things that happen within the ecosystems comes with what a marine biologist is. Well, the oceans are so full of life, so complex. We are still discovering, as we, as humans, we discover new species seemingly every year which is incredible to me because in my opinion they've been there they're not new we just have never discovered them before because of the depths and the complex ecosystems that are there being a marine biologist honestly to me as a wildlife biologist thinking about that marine world it is overwhelming to me it it is almost too complex for me to even really want to dive into so even like as a marine biologist growing up as a kid you know wanting to become a marine biologist i wanted to be a sea turtle rescuer which brings in why I love sea yeah. turtles, right? So I'm originally from South Texas, and South Padre Island was an hour away from me, and there was a rescue facility that actually I didn't visit till I was in college, mm. um, which is pretty funny, but that's how it happened. 
so then I end up in Alaska for a marine biology degree, right? So if I'm going to Alaska, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to study whales, going to study orcas. That's what I want to do. So then I'm like, wait, there's a lot more that I have no idea what is even there. Even though I live so close to the Gulf of Mexico, I didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. So when I first arrived to Alaska, literally everything was new and I had to learn it. And then um, some friends that were from Alaska were like, let's go down to the beach. And I saw my first tide pool. So it's all connected, you know. Yeah. And I was like, OK, so I don't even know what this is. And a lot of people, when people think about Alaska, they're thinking, oh, it's cold. It's just dark. It's just gray. If you look up pictures of intertidal invertebrates or intertidal animals found in Alaska, especially southeast Alaska, southeast Alaska as you move further north, it is colder. The temperature is colder, so it's going to be different. But if you are looking for intertidal animals, the colors that you will see in an intertidal or in a tide pool, excuse me, is out of this world it's, it's bright huh bright it huh. is a rainbow even with like the algae coralline algae is going to be a magenta color everybody listening is like googling right now one <laughs> yeah i know i mean really do it like um one of my favorite invertebrates is an opalescent nudibranch i mean opalescent so it's going to look like it's shimmery um it's super tiny like smaller than your pinky um maybe the size of a little kid's pinky you know but it's really, really bright. And you keep looking and you keep learning and it's all of these colors and you're like, ha, I had no idea. And these are invertebrates, so they yeah. don't even have a backbone. You know, as a kid, when you're learning, sure, it doesn't have a backbone, but that's it. But then you start diving deep and there are so many things that is that are there. But then if you keep going, there are so many things that we don't know about. And it's like the rainforest is the same way, mm -hmm. you know? So there are so many new discoveries every year. So you actually made me think about here in the Ozarks, even in just in the States, a lot of the animals that we find, like, let's just say they are a salamander. We find a salamander. We're not supposed to keep those animals. We're not supposed to take them home and keep them. Just send with a box turtle. When you're out looking at these tidal pools, can you keep the animals you find? Is that okay? And, and, uh, can you get in trouble if you do? Um, so you cannot um, keep them. Oh, you shouldn't keep them. You need to have a setup for if you were allowed to keep them. You know, you always have to think about what the animal needs, just like what you need to survive. They're going to have their own needs to survive. So n no, you can't. Um, and if you find a shell, you always, I always say that you need to make sure that there's nothing in their living because if you travel... Some people are going to leave everything there, um, but if curiosity comes, you know, to you and you want to take that shell home, then um, you just need to make sure that it, nothing is in there because a shell at the beach had a living animal in it. Yeah. So we call them seashells, but it is a whole different phylum, a whole different group. So it's going to be either... a it's a mollusk, right? So then you have over 35,000 different species of mollusks, which includes snails and clams. And those nudibranchs are there too, and they don't even have a shell. So, um, or snails and slugs, you know. So. Well, we have we have a history, the, the three of us, in some shells. 
We sure do. Some don't some we? late nights. And With Ben thousands. and I were lost, and you're like, no, 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 this is this isn't awesome. And we're like, sure. <laughs> they all look the same, don't they? Let's yeah. just put them there. You know, there was a time where when we all three worked together, we were tasked to organize and define, categorize all of these different shells. Well, I'm the odd man out. You have Brian the biologist, you have Sarah the marine biologist, and you have Ben just this this dude. And we're all tested to name these shells. And so it was a new world for me because Sarah has all these books that we're supposed to look through to organize. But I'm here to tell you, like, the pictures of these shells in the books really don't match very well with the shells that we had in front of us. And so I just felt like I like a little kid in school because I would grab the shell. I would try to identify it. And I'm like, forget this. So then I'd be like, Sarah, (laughs) (laughs) tell me what this is. I didn't even help out. I shouldn't even have been there because basically Sarah identified everything for me, which she did anyway. So thanks for your help. I I couldn't have done it. That was that was a lot of shells. And even though I'm a marine biologist, I only studied in Alaska. I mean, you have the rest of the world with the same looking animals, but they're completely different species. And it just takes one change of a characteristic to make it a different species, a mm-hmm. different animal. And and then we got to go set all these shells up on display. <laughs> and then we didn't like the display, so we had to redo the display. And I think that was the night we heard this bang and we turned around and it, one of the tanks next to a, next to us, a shark was eating, attacking another shark. shark. It was yeah. crazy to see because yeah. it really was kind of an uncharacteristic thing to even be happening. But I remember that's the night we were setting up those shell displays. That is absolutely correct. Yeah, we heard it. Mm-hmm. I remember we we were all like, we paused and we looked up and we went around the corner. And I actually remember I was taking a goldfish snack. I was eating a snack because we were there <laughs> late. I know it's the things I remember, uh-huh. but... But yeah, we looked, and sure enough, I remember calling somebody about it. Yeah, that I just remember the sound because we couldn't. We were just around the corner from the exhibit, but you heard like this, almost like a, a small car accident or something, and it was just the impact of that bigger shark going after that smaller shark, and it didn't kill it right then. I think later on that that shark died that it attacked, but right then it you could see that it was beat up. But I'll never forget that night doing the shells and, and the shark attack, but. Anyway, I think you've kind of already explained what made you want to be a marine biologist. It was really that that love for sea turtles and, and living near the coast in, in Texas. But it sounds like God took you to a different place and then kind of steered your path somewhere else as he revealed, look, this is beautiful and awesome too, even though it's small and people don't see or think of these these tide pools and the animals that live there like the sea turtles that are so, they're in the news because they're keystone, because they're endangered, because they're big. They're in movies, they're in the news, but your heart really fell onto these uh, invertebrates and these tide pools. And so that's really cool to see how you got steered that way. Becoming a marine biologist, it, it's an interesting career, it really is. It, you'll see, hear kids say that they want to do that. What are some of the disadvantages of getting into that field? So, and, and I have to be honest here, you know, it is a very competitive field. Mm. Um, you do have to find your niche within the field. Sometimes some of us get lucky and you are happy with where you are and what you are doing. If you think you are going to get rich from becoming a marine biologist, you are not. Mm -hmm. You know, it is dedication. um, It is a lot of work. It is a lot of research, depending on what you end up doing. Um, 
you just always have to work hard because it is a competitive field. It's it's a popular field. People want to work with animals. And it's not just marine biology. It is a lot of the biology fields, which you, you already know, mm-hmm. you know. And we do end up in different areas and different places. And some people don't end up using their degree. So... I think that's the thing to remember is it is competitive. You might want to do something, but you might end up doing something else. Right. And it is very similar for wildlife biology, like you mentioned. And I, you mentioned not actually using the degree. I saw a stat that more people who get an undergraduate wildlife biology degree will never use the degree for their career than actually will. And so when I give advice to people, if they're like, no, I love it, this is what I have to do, and you could probably testify to this for marine biology as well, I tell them, you need to be willing to do the stuff that nobody else wants to do and to work for free, to do these internships and these volunteer things. It's how you get to know people. It's how you actually truly gain the skills and the knowledge. Go be willing to work for free or pennies on the dollar, and then you'll be able to get a job in the field. That is correct. Yeah, I mean, my husband has a degree in marine biology and does not use it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, he used it for a little bit, but then he realized that the work he was doing in Missouri, because we met in Alaska, you know, so we met in Alaska. He worked at a salmon hatchery, was a culturist and then an assistant manager. And then we um, made a move and ended up in Missouri. And he worked in the fish world for a little bit, but it wasn't the same as it was in Alaska, You know, so then he literally made a career change, not using his degree. Now, there are some things that he does use that he learned while being in those positions. But he he doesn't use his his degree. And it ends up being true for so many people, because like you said, you don't make a lot of money. And when you're speaking on competitiveness, what you're really saying is when jobs are open, there are so many people with the same qualifications or near the same qualifications as you applying for that job. So it's really hard to sell yourself to get in there. Um, and there's just really uh, coast to coast. There's just not really that many jobs in that discipline. Right. That is you know, true. the Sarah that, that Ben and I know as a marine biologist really chose to be an educator. That, that's what you've made your career out is, is educating in the field of biology. What drew you to that discipline within the marine biology world? You know, I think it started in college um, because I, our college had a small wet lab, which means we had a few touch tables, you know, um, and we also had a salmon hatchery at my college Mm -hmm. in Sitka. And Sarah, you Um, may have said it. What is the name of the college that you went to? um, I went to Sheldon Jackson College in Sitka, Alaska. Sheldon Jackson. Yep. So it's actually closed now, but yeah. Here but, we are giving them a shout out. I know, I know. But um, it was just a, a small college, very, very hands-on. Mm. Okay. So I had the opportunity to first work in the hatchery, you know, and I, at that point, I was just taking everything in. I want to learn. I want to do. Let's just do it. And then one of the summers, I believe it was maybe my second summer, maybe my first summer there, um, they opened the wet lab and Sitka is an island, but is also a tourist town. So there's a lot of cruise ships that stop by in Sitka. And um, I was working at the wet lab so tourists could come in. And then at that point, I was just, I wanted to tell everybody everything that I had learned. And from there, after college, I uh, worked at the boarding school in Sitka Mm -hmm. before we moved to Missouri 
And that was working with teens and kids. And again, like I was helping with school because I've honestly, I've always been a kid or I was a kid, a person that loved school. So I've always loved to learn. But um, a funny story here. In high school, my first presentation that I had to do um, after I was done, I went to the bathroom and puked, mm. you know, and not to toot my own horn, but I've done presentations for 5,000 people now, right. you know, and I'm like, let's do it because I want to share what I I know. Um, but it was those moments working with those kids and then working with the animals that I ended up loving. And I just wanted to tell people about it, tell people about it. And then when I moved here, I'm like, I was pretty stubborn. And I'm like, um, we're staying in Missouri only if I can work in an aquarium. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I told my husband, I'm like, that is what I'm doing. So that's what we got to do. You do what you need to do. I'm doing this. That's, that's, that's <laughs> how it went, honestly. So, and I ended up working in the education department. And it, I mean, it was not a rough start, but I had a lot of learning to do. Right. You know? And I just took it in and I'm like wait, this is, this can be my job. You know, I'm just going to tell people what I know about animals and about you're going to give me I money. Love. Like I'm not making millions, but I'll tell you, yeah. you know, and that's from there. I kept going with the education. Yeah. And, and it, it does, it, it fits you. You're, you're a great educator. Ben and I have watched you for years and re we really have just learned a lot from you, especially we reach out to you now when we are teaching younger classes at kindergarten, you really excel with understanding how to portray these messages, complex messages, but at the level that these kids can understand, we reach out to you for help on that, and you're always willing to do that even though it's not benefiting you. And so your passion comes out there, and we're so thankful for your willingness to do that because it, it is a skill and understanding that you have that, that we don't, and I don't think many people have. So uh, thank you for that, for sure. You know, you mentioned working at the aquarium. You worked there for quite a long time, for many years. Aquariums can be a little controversial. A lot of people believe that they're they're harmful. They're not really a proper way for animals to spend their lives, to live that way. What would you say to that sentiment? You know, well, first of all, I, aquariums uh, allow people to see the unseen, you mm -hmm. know, which is very, very important, I believe, to for our generations to know what is there, you know. And if it's an aquarium that is in an area where maybe those kids or those people are never going to be able to travel and, and look at those things, then that is the purpose of an aquarium, to show what is there, right. what there is in nature. Um, and sometimes even if you have the chance to travel, you can't see what there is. You know, you don't know what animals are out there. Um, so, but when it, it comes to aquariums and the science behind an aquarium, there is a lot to it. So you're not just going to go and have a container and put a fish in it and, you know, feed it something and call it good. No, there is, when it comes to aquariums, there are a lot of people that work to and research to figure out how it's going to work. Is it going to work? What does it need? Um, mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff, a lot of behind the scenes. So these people, it starts off with the enclosure. Is it going to be enough space? So how do you know it's enough space? Because somebody already did the research, right? So people are 
scientists are actually out there observing these animals for a long time. So sometimes aquariums or people don't know the amount of time it takes to even think about starting an aquarium. And once they do have the animals, the people on the team have to do a lot of math because if it's an aquarium, so you have to think about water quality, you know, you have to do all of that math depending where the aquarium is. If it's a saltwater aquarium, mm -hmm. then you have to make salt. Right. You're not just going to go and, and, and just put in regular water. The food that the animal is going to eat is probably food um, at a higher quality that you and I eat. Right. Honestly. Um, and then from there, it is educating the people of what is there. You yeah. Know? There really is. You, you mentioned earlier in the podcast this providing. If you were to take something from a tidal pool, you'd have to provide what this animal needs to survive. And in an aquarium, these animals are getting that. Are there bad aquariums out there that are doing it poorly? I would guess yes, because in any discipline there are. Uh, the one that we worked at, I would not put in that category at all. So most people that are taking care of these aquariums, these people are taking it serious. It's their life. They want to provide a life for these animals that's awesome. In most cases, these animals are probably living a better life than they would have lived in the wild. They, they don't have predators. They are getting hand-picked meals specific to the nutrition that they need. They are getting water that is tested and built for the quality that provides them the best life. The other side of that is almost all of the animals that live in an aquarium, they don't have the awareness or cognitive function. Biologically, they don't even have the ability to know that they're living in an aquarium and not in an ocean. So some of those arguments are actually really, really irrelevant, if you ask me personally. But from what you've seen, it sounds like these animals are living a great life. They really are. And, you know, the other thing that aquariums do for animals, we've talked about endangered species, you know, is they are helping endangered species, you know. So the scientists at these aquariums, they do a lot more behind the scenes than just even taking care of the animals that they have. They are doing that research of, okay, so we do have these corals in our aquarium. So can we take some of those corals and observe them and grow them and put them back into the wild? Right. So same thing with like zebra sharks, you know? So there are a lot of animals to where the aquariums are actually helping the wild populations because they have the space, they have the room, you know? I'll come back to my favorite animal, the, the sea turtles. So when the temperature changes, they are reptiles. So they are going to get cold, cold stunned and they go lethargic. You know, they still breathe air through their nose, right? right. They have lungs. So then who's going to take care of them? Aquariums are going to take care of them. Aquarius and aquariums, yeah. That's right. So it is sometimes the knowledge that people do not have about aquariums and about animals, you know, and... And yes, we we want them to be happy. As humans, that's what we want to see. And they think that that is not enough space. It's not enough for those animals. Right. But the reality is, it is, and it's probably even more. Mm-hmm. You know, you've taught me really all the marine knowledge that I have has pretty much come from you. The most impactful thing that that moment of like, hang on, hang on, I need to sit down and, and process what you just said, what you just taught me, was really about the plastics in the oceans. Would you just share some of those astonishing facts and numbers 
about those uh, ocean plastic mats, I guess that's what you would call it, and just the sheer amount of plastic that is in our ocean today. So that's one thing where um, we don't think about it, right? So if you pause and look around you, you're going to see plastic. Mm -hmm. It's easy for us to acquire, to have. It's just easy for our everyday life. It is everywhere now. It is everywhere. So then when we think about it or when we don't think about it is how long does it take for plastic to break down? We don't think about those things. Yeah. It takes a long time, mm -hmm. hundreds of years. So where does that plastic go? Of course, some of us recycle, some of us don't. It ends up in the landfill, right? So, but then if we're talking about oceans, it ends up in the oceans. And even though you are here in Missouri, or we are here in Missouri, there are people that are in other places, everything is connected. Our waterways are connected and not only water, but there is wind, right? And they will end up in the ocean. So if you think about the oceans, um, then they have currents. So those currents are moving the water, right? You've probably heard that. So as the water moves, there are some areas in the oceans around the entire world, not just our ocean. Sometimes mm -hmm. we, we stop and think, oh, you know, I've been to the ocean. Well, there, think about the entire world, yeah, okay? it's almost all ocean. All, yeah, it's <laughs> almost all ocean. Yeah. It's almost all water. So there are these areas, these big pockets, and I'll give you some numbers in just a little bit, but there are five areas that there are garbage patches. And it's basically where your current just stops and it's it's going to circulate in that area. It's just floating? It's just floating, okay? So the largest one is actually close to us, okay? It is uh, the giant Pacific garbage patch. and It, it has a name. The, the it, giant The Pacific. North Pacific garbage patch. Yeah, that's what it's called. Okay. And it actually sits between Hawaii and California. So we, we don't see it, right? Because it's ocean right we might fly over it but even then you probably might not so that is the largest one how and big that, is that thing are you ready no probably not no you're it breaks not. my heart honestly right it is 1.6 million square kilometers okay numbers that is twice the size of texas <sighs> twice the size of texas that is incredible so sure it's it some of the pla we know plastic floats right but there is so much that are some areas that are around two thousand meters deep That's, hang on so oh, the, he's top, doing math. the top is two times the size of texas Correct. which is our second largest state in Correct. the united states and then it goes two thousand meters which would be like what six thousand feet uh -huh. deep of plastic or 1.24 miles deep sounds made up it sounds made up sounds made up it really does so it and it just it sits there so when it sits there with the water breaking then we bring in something else it's breaking down to even smaller pieces mm. so then we go into microplastics right so these are plastics that if they're all together, you're going to see them because plastic is usually very colorful nowadays, right? right? It's not just clear. So clear is probably even worse because you can't see it. Mm. But if you add the word micro, which means you can't really see it. Right, small. So it's it's very, very small. So if you 
go to the beach, right, and you pick up a handful of sand and you put it under a microscope, it's going to show a lot of a lot of microplastics, a lot really? of plastic. And now you're like, well, it's small. What does that do for the what environment? What does that matter, right? right? So our largest animals in our oceans are whales. Mm -hmm. And what do whales eat? Not all of them. Yeah, they're filter. Right. right. So they're going to eat that plankton that is very, very tiny. So the, the, the small pieces of plastic are also affecting our largest animals that are also endangered. Oh, man. So it we is. We just don't even think about it because it's, it's, we don't see it, don't talk about it, don't care. That is right. Man. That is shocking to share, and you're really only talking about one of the five. And so I, I wonder combined, I don't know if you know this, for me it'd be interesting if we combined all five of those mats, how much trash, how much plastic is that? I, I bet it would just absolutely be flooring because you just shared one, and it's hard to even believe the numbers that you gave. Yeah, and I, I honestly don't know what those numbers are, but you, you're correct. And I, the point is that it's not harmless. It, it is harmful. It is harming these endangered species that we love. There has to be a solution out there. I personally don't have it. I hate to, I hate to give problems without proposing solution, but I don't have one because that is a monstrous, literally a monstrous, monstrous problem. It really and is. And when you started sharing those things with me several years ago, I, I couldn't believe it. And I, I think I even went and looked some of this stuff up because I was like, she can't, she's got to be exaggerating this. And, and you're not. And honestly, those numbers are probably growing. It's probably not getting smaller. It's probably adding more and more to that every day. So since you are hearing that, I would suggest finding out what you can do to take action. Maybe it's just recycling at home. Even if it's just one step of recycling that one Coke bottle that you have once a month, you're going to be making a step in the positive direction for everybody in yeah. the whole world. So I appreciate you sharing that, even though that is not exactly a fun, fuzzy thing to hear. It's not. I think I, the other thing, um, because this is an outdoor podcast and we love the outdoors, is is if you are somewhere that you love and you see some trash, pick it up. Mm, that's an easy thing pick to do. Pick it up. Take it with you. It's, it's an extra bag with you, but it's not going to be out there and right. it won't continue to break down. Leave it better than you found it. It's mm -hmm. easy to do. It's, it's so easy. Even if you don't have a bag, pick it up, put it in your pocket. Uh, yeah, that is step number one. That's mm -hmm. a good point. You know... No secret, I don't like invasive species. I know there are many that are affecting our oceans. Are there any invasive species issues with our oceans that you'd really like to see solved, like that are maybe personal to you or that you're like, man, if we could take care of that one, it would help so much? I think it's, it's when it comes to in, or in, excuse me, invasive species, it's animals that don't belong there. So mm -hmm. they weren't there to begin with. So we did it. We, we did it. Mm. We did it. Um, so one of them that is, is a popular one is the lionfish, right? So that fish is, um, a fish that people who are hobbyists keep it, you know, they're beautiful. They're they are beautiful. Looking. Um, but then it story is that it was released into the Atlantic ocean, which is not where they're from. Mm. So from there, because it is in a new area, they were ended up being a top predator and they can eat. They'll eat any fish that fits in its mouth, right. basically very opportunistic. So from there, then they can breed and they have lots, 
lots of babies, millions. So from there, they just keep growing and growing and growing and the population continues to grow and grow and grow. You know, in the uh, maybe mid 2000s, so if you think of the Atlantic Ocean, um, they have already found some in the Gulf of Mexico, which oh, means that they have come around Florida up into the Gulf of Mexico. So that is just a fish that is going to deplete the natural, you yeah. know. It's going to mess up the whole ecosystem. The entire areas. ecosystem there, it's going to eat all of the fish that are in those reefs, and it's just going to going to continue to go. So now, I mean, there are things that are happening. You know, there's fish derbies. They actually go and spear them. So there are things that are happening, but if they don't, if people don't, it'll continue to grow. Are, the, the are they venomous? They are venomous. So on their dorsal spines, which are the top spines, um, they do have some venom. So the people that are fishing for them also have to be careful. But if you think about that venom, then some of the animals that might be bigger that want to eat them can't. Can't. Mm. So that's so, what part of why they have so many babies and they're hard for other predators to take on. So those, those predators in that area aren't used to having to go after this venomous fish. Man, that, that sounds like a good one to pick for having to take out. I heard that there is actually incentives for restaurant owners or chefs in those areas that they will actually pay them to learn to prepare these lionfish and serve it on their menus. Is that true? Have you heard that too? Um, I Well, I haven't heard about the incentives, but I know that like when they do have those derbies, mm -hmm. that there are big incentives. So it's a double whammy. So I, it probably is true. Yeah. And it doesn't look like a fish. And especially knowing that it's venomous, it doesn't look like one that you'd want to eat. But supposedly there are chefs out there that have this way to prepare it and they're, they're serving it at restaurants. So any way that these, these scientists can incentivize people to start using and taking these fish from the ocean is good. But with so many cases, these invasive species are so prolific that there really is no end. There is no, we can't get them all completely out of here because the ocean is massive and these animals are great at doing what they're supposed to do. So as humans, we need to do better and stop moving animals from their natural habitats is really the message there. What is one myth about the ocean or just maybe a marine species in general that you'd really like to set straight? You hear it all the time. We're here in the middle of the country and you hear it and you're like, that is just not right. And every time you hear it, you want to scream the truth. So I want to change it. Maybe I don't have a myth, but I think I have a good fun fact. All right, and we'll, ta things, we'll take a fun fact. Things people don't realize... Um, and it's another part of the marine biology that I fell in love with. And it's, it has to do with plankton, um, which is a, a funny word. But um, so zooplankton is microscopic animals, right? So you, you need a microscope to see them. So when it comes to some of our animals, you know, crabs, you know, because you can go to the beach and you can pick them up and we know, you know, the shows that show us and, and they are delicious to eat. Um, and then you have like, if you're going to go fishing, you have those big billfish. So marlins and, mm -hmm. and the thing that people don't know is they start off as zooplankton. Oh, wow. You literally have to look under a microscope in order for you to see them when they are in their young stages. So people don't know that. It's like, okay, oh, look at that crab. Hello? Like you needed a microscope. You needed a microscope to see what that was. And it didn't even look like a crab before yeah. you got that crab. That's so cool. I didn't know that. So you're telling me like a sailfish or a mm -hmm. swordfish, mm -hmm. these 
big, giant, seven, eight feet long fish that mm-hmm. are so many anglers go out seeking, pay thousands of dollars to go catch these. They start off as something you have to see with a microscope. Yeah. So think about it. Even if you knew about your local fish, you know, or you found fish eggs. Yeah, you can see them. You can see them, but how how big are they? I mean, they're small. They're small. Yeah. They're small. So there are things that are even smaller than that. That's so, incredible. Yeah. I didn't know that. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I don't know. You've shared a little bit about these these tidal pools, and we know some of the work you've done at the aquarium, but do you have one thing in your mind that just really sticks out as a marine biologist that that was my favorite thing I've ever been a part of? That is my favorite project. I think it was before I was even an educator, and it was right out of college. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate to do an internship um, that allowed me to look at different parts of marine biology um, with the National Marine Fishery Service. And back then, remember, I was a little more adventurous. So um, we would do some fish counts, and we would actually go and identify fish. So I was put on a fishing vessel um, with a crew and... A bass boat? No, it was not a bass boat. (laughs) (laughs) It was a little bigger than that. Okay. Um, So then we would trawl. So because we were doing research, the net would go along the bottom of the ocean floor and then we'd bring it onto the boat and we would identify fish. So I love, I love classification. I love to identify fish and, and different things. So that was probably one of my favorite things that I did, even though it was like at three o'clock in the morning, you know, right. that we had to do. Um, but it was at the just graduated high, uh, college and it was an internship for that summer, which it, that internship also allowed me to do other things within marine biology. Um, we had, or they had, um, a, a salmon hatchery and I got to go and, and do a bigger production of salmon hatchery. Cause you know, we're taking eggs, but on the research side of it, we were also taking kidney samples because we wanted to make sure that the fish were healthy. Then it would be passed on to the other hatcheries to make sure that everything was going good with the fish populations and the the fish runs coming back when you're bringing up these nets on this this uh sample boat i guess you would call it Mm -hmm. when you brought it up and you you drop this load of fish down most of the time were you like oh that's da 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 or was it like what the heck are these things and you have to spend time to find them was it really diverse with what you were finding or was it kind of like, okay, I got a hundred of these and then there's two things over here that we may have to look um, at? It was, it was pretty diverse because, mm. it, I mean, you you send the net all the way down, you know, and the, we had a good team, but we, I mean, I saw some fish that I had only seen in books, you know. That's so, so cool. Yeah, so like a hatchet fish and I even saw a gulper eel like in front of me. So those are the things that it was like, okay. Well, I don't know. Are those rare? Or? Um, I don't know. They're not rare. They're not endangered. Just but most it's, people are going to see they're, them. They're deep ocean. Oh, I mean, not super deep, but right. deep enough that you're not going to go swimming and see one. It's cool to think about because you have seen all those species and the most people, Ben and I for sure, are going to go their whole lives and not see all those. And, it, and you have. And the that's, coolest that's a really species that, cool I've, thing. that I've seen, sorry to interrupt, oh, you're good. was actually brought up by a fisherman and it was a giant squid. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was 16 feet long, 
And it was, it wasn't, I mean, massive, but it was a giant squid. Yeah, 16 feet is pretty massive. Right, right. You know, your passion and your love for these animals and and the work that you've done and the work that you do, we see it. And it, it is so important. And I'm so glad that you're sharing it with our listeners. But you've mentioned there are a lot of species on the endangered least endangered list in the marine world and i probably know your answer here just based on conversation that we've had but if there was one species from the marine endangered list that you could remove what would it be and why um you you, you're right you know what it is and it is those sea turtles um first of all it's what i've loved for almost my entire life Mm -hmm. um we talked about it already they are a keystone species they're very important in our ecosystems um a second is some of our whales as well you know these are huge animals um gentle giants people don't know um but it also brings me to um not all regulations are the same uh, around the world you know so with the research happening um we hope that everybody does fall into what is right to, to protect these animals. Right. So every country could maybe adopt some stricter, regu- stricter regulations on some of these endangered species. Correct. And, mm-hmm. and it, it, it is different. It is very, very different across across the, the ocean, we'll say. Well, Sarah, you have shared your heart and so much with us in this marine world. Is there anything, is there any last message to, to people, maybe a kid that wants to be a marine biologist or just there's, there's billions... I shouldn't say billions. There are millions of people who have never seen the ocean before. Do you have just a final message about marine biology? I think if if you're a kiddo wanting to go into this field is to learn as much as you can now as a kid. And you'll you'll know if you want to continue going with it. And if you don't, that's okay. There's a lot of other things out there. Um and I think that there is just always going to be so much that we won't know about our oceans and our ocean animals. And things are changing and things do change. So it's just trying to gain as much knowledge and learning what you can. And even if you just love the ocean, going to the ocean, just remember that, hey, I'm sitting on the sandy beach, right? And the ocean is in front of me. And there might be some trash around me. Remember that even though you don't like to maybe go in the water or you don't want to know anything about the animals in the water, you can still help by maybe picking up that trash or taking your trash with you. You know, I want to share that and echo what Sarah's saying because Ben Brandell, growing up in the Ozarks, I've never had a passion for the oceans. I've never honestly cared about the oceans growing up. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I don't know a lot of people listening may feel the way I do because you lived in a landlocked state where you didn't, you weren't around it, you didn't know about it, you didn't talk about it, um, you didn't even really the impacts weren't affecting you in that moment, you know. And so growing up, I just didn't understand it. And so I first want to thank God for bringing Sarah into my life and into Brian's lives. Because she has brought an appreciation, a, a better understanding than I could have ever just by watching National Geographic. Like, so I want to thank Sarah for that. Um, because in the Ozarks, I don't have to worry about those things right here, right now. Because also, Ben Brandell doesn't really like sand. I don't enjoy the beach. I don't enjoy those things. But I'm just, I'm telling you, if if those listening, if you have or know somebody that's a marine biologist, get to know them. Um, 
learn as much as you can from them because it has changed my perspective on our oceans um, all the way down to the micro level like plastics and I know what I can do to help all the oceans is to pick up plastic and that's something that Brian and I try to do when we go out on our programs you know we teach well it's called people are pigs because people throw their stuff out out the window you know or they let it blow around Um, so we go and we try to do pickups and cleanups and I'm here to say that it helps thousands of miles away like what you can do right there in your own backyard what you can do by just looking around you and picking up anything you find and see do it do it right now um start tomorrow um start picking up those things because it does have an impact in our waterways and i learned that from sarah and i want to thank you sarah for all that you've shared um, not only today but um in my life for me personally so thank you you're welcome you know sarah you've you've answered a, a lot of questions really well and I've learned so much from you, but I learned even more from you sitting here answering these questions. So I appreciate you doing that. But I really want people to know the Sarah that we know, the Sarah that we see. So I do want to end with a change of subject, if you're okay with that. Yes. Um, What I really want people to know about you, because this really encompasses who Sarah Anderson is, and it's way more important than being a marine biologist in your vocation, but you're a mother of three adopted children. Um, You have completely opened your life, your heart, your home, everything, you and your husband for these kids. And it's real love. It is real love. And these kids aren't going to get it from their biological parents. They're not going to get it anywhere else. But you give it. And these kids won't even, I mean, they're not going to know a better love than what your parents or what, what their parents, you and your husband, give them. Do you have a message that you would like to put out there to all our listeners and, and hope that they would share it with people that they know that maybe don't listen about adoption? So, you know, adoption for us wasn't our first choice. Got to be honest, right? Yeah. It was not our first choice. And and when we came to the time where that was what we were going to do, you know, um, it's not easy. It's not easy. Adoption is, is very, very hard. Um, but when my husband and I decided to go the adoption route, and there's a lot of forms of adoption. And you know what? there's no wrong way if you decide that you want a child and you're going to take care of the child you can go domestic my husband and i went through the state Mm -hmm. um you can go international the thing when it comes to adoption is to remember that all children need love Mm -hmm. and that's what it is so we open our hearts and we open our hearts. I tried to, dev- to do it. I know it deviates a little bit. Like when I teach, that's why I like to share things. You know, I love to give my heart out to kids in my programs, but my children as well. Because um, we were foster parents before we adopted and it, it, that wasn't easy either. You know, we were, thought we were going to go... Um, all the way to adoption and we didn't um and those kids had our hearts so we said oh you know we're just doing the foster we can't get um too connected connected close um uh no you you give them your heart i had to give them their heart or my heart because they deserve it they were put in this world for um reasons and their parents couldn't take care of them but we we can and we Mm -hmm. we want to we want to so 
it's not easy, but um, you put love first and you put them first. Mm -hmm. And it continues to grow who you are and give. And I will honestly tell you that adopting children has made me a better helper, a better servant to other people who need help. Wow. And I believe that. That's powerful. Yeah. And it, it has been a joy to watch you over the years. I mean, you're, you're an awesome mom and, and your love for your kids is so real and so genuine. Um, it, it would be so hard to even know that they're not your biological children because you love them like they are and, and, and they should be. And you do that so amazingly. I want to give you some encouragement. You know, God speaks very profoundly and very directly um, about orphans. So I want to give you encouragement so that you know that you are doing the Lord's work and so that everybody listening to this knows because God tells us to take care of the orphans and the widows. Um, and a lot of churches fail at that. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't done much of that in my life at all. And so maybe if I really want to be honoring God the way that you are, Sarah, I should I should consider that more. And, and there's probably some people that are feeling that conviction and pulling that direction at this point in their lives. And, and maybe this is that moment that's pushing you to that. But I want to read from James, and this is in chapter 1. It is verse 27. It says, Pure and undefiled religion, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I think that is so powerful because it uses the word pure and their trouble. So God views helping orphans and widows as perfect, pure, that's, that's the word. And when you're going out to find adopted children, you have to understand they're going to come with a mess. So do biological kids. We all have a mess. But you have to love them there. You have to meet them there. And it isn't going to be easy like you said, but you also said it's worth it. It is worth it. It is worth it. So, Sarah, thank you for sharing you. You're honest, you're real, you're genuine, and you shared really your two passions with us. So thank you for being on the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me, guys. I, I really enjoyed it. Ben, I don't know about you, but I know I thoroughly enjoyed sitting down with Sarah for that interview. You mentioned it in, in the intro that we've learned so much from her over the years. I learned even more from her sitting down in this interview. She taught us things that I didn't know. I thought I'd heard all of her stories and learned everything, but I hadn't. Uh, is there anything that you really took away from that that inspired you or, or intrigued you as from that interview? You know, microplastics, um, that just blew my mind. Uh, the size, the the vastness of how many plastics are in our oceans, um, that's just what we can see. But then really thinking about the, at the microscopic level how it is impacting all those animals, but also realizing, and I'm not even sure we even really touched on it in this interview, but how it does impact humans is impacting humans is going to continue to impact humans because of the microplastics what it could possibly be doing to our human bodies and so if you find trash around where you live pick it up dispose of it properly i can't stress that enough and that's that's one thing that sarah really opened my eyes to you know that was a really good point and we do try to do that when we're out on programs and, and just around in general but what i really took from that interview is I want to go tide pooling now. <laughs> yeah. when she, I want to go to Alaska and see these vibrant colors in these tide pools that she right. was talking about and just learn in it and get to know some new creatures, things I've never seen before. Creation is so amazing, and she really 
put kind of a, a little fire on me to to maybe plan a trip up there someday and do some of this tide pooling that she was talking about because we can't experience that here in, in middle America and hearing her stories and seeing her face light up talking about it made me want to do it as well I hope that some of you listening got inspired as well if you feel like this was a, a moving interview or you want to hear more from Sarah let us know leave us a review or send us an email it's m2boutdoors at gmail.com please hit the download and subscribe button on whatever platform that you are listening so you can get every new episode that we put out follow along on facebook tiktok and instagram and if you really really want to help us out Whatever platform that you're listening on, find where it gives you the option to leave us a review or a rating. That really helps us out to know what people are liking. It helps us to move up the charts so that more people find our podcast as well. That is it for another great episode of the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast. We'll be back on Tuesday with a brand new one. And as always, between now and that time, we hope that you find time to get outdoors. Thank you for listening to the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast, hosted by Brian Hoffmeyer and Ben Brandell. Please help us by subscribing. Also, follow along on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook.